the reading for today is 2 Samuel 19, 15 through 30. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember your servant did wrong on the day my lord left the king left my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's household, all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has now come safely home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Jason. Uh, Jason uh, handles all the scripture readings that are 15 verses and more, so he's done a nice job this morning. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, well, good morning, Arcadia. It's uh, good to see you, and I, uh, just on behalf of the pastors, uh, Anne, we thank you very much for that tribute. Thank you. We, we appreciate it. We love serving here. We love this church, um, and we love this staff, and uh, uh, we're blessed to be here. Um, I will mention, um, in honor of, of uh, clergy appreciation, pastor appreciation day, um, Jackie went to Southern Utah to play in a volleyball tournament, so that's, that's where she still thinks she's in high school. I don't understand what's going on there. Anyway, a <clears throat> um, couple of announcements. I just want to remind you of the release party that's this coming Saturday night. Uh, over at the Rebel Lounge, please, um, if you haven't gotten your tickets, uh, please, uh, we'd love to have you there. Uh, I got an early release of the uh, Mastered, I guess is what you would call it, uh, the EP, the 10 songs, and I listened to it when I was running the other morning twice, and it's just, it's fantastic. You've already heard some of the songs released here in, uh, in worship, but they're going to do all 10 of them uh, there. It's going to be great, and also to help 
Uh, those of you who are parents, it's a kid's night out that night as well. Uh, so you can contact Emmy and, and make sure that you have a place to be able to put your kids if you don't want to take them over to the uh, release party. So wanted to mention that. And then also want to mention that um, we do have a membership class for the next three Wednesday nights in a row, starting this Wednesday night here in the sanctuary at 6.30. So if you're interested in membership, um, you can come and, and hear what we have to say, uh, the pastors and a couple of the elders, and, and you can ask your questions over the three nights. You don't have to be here all three nights, but uh, we're just giving you an opportunity to be able to come in and uh, read the package, but also ask some questions and, and hear from us a little bit more deeply about Redemption Church and Arcadia in particular. So that's all of the business I have to take care of. Let's get into today's passage. We've been going through this 22-week series called We Want a King, and we're in the midst of David's life now, and we're in the midst of a lot of David's uh, troubles. And uh, I want to uh, let you know that today is a little bit tricky. The text today is a little bit tricky, and I know you're thinking last week was six chapters. Uh, how much more tricky could it be? Well, the reason is because we're going to have to jump back and forth between some chapters in order to get the storytelling uh, and the context proper. So uh, I'll just warn you, there's going to be a lot of storytelling today, and uh, some of the stuff that we're going to go through is a little bit thick, but it's really important, and it's highly applicable to our lives uh, today. So I hope that, um, you know, you take a sip of caffeine and you'll uh, tune in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize. Uh, first, I'm going to review last week so we can kind of get up to speed. We do that every week during a narrative series like this as we review where we've been so that we can bridge that gap in case you weren't here last week. Um, then I'm going to just summarize the two chapters that make up today's message, which are chapters 19 and 20. You heard Jason read from chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. Uh, and then toward the end, I'm going to include chapter 16 uh, and some back and forth for some important context. And one of the things I think that we'll be able to see today, I mentioned it last week, is that, uh, yes, uh, war can achieve its aim. It can settle some issues. It can take care of some business. But I would also argue, and this text kind of helps us understand this, uh, there's no such thing as winning a war without raising new issues, without raising new challenges, and without raising new problems that have to be dealt with. So last week, six chapters of Scripture telling the story of David and his son Absalom, and it was just some tremendously painful uh, stuff last week. And in the end, Absalom is killed in a battle, in a battle after an untimely run-in with an oak tree. Uh, Joab heard of this, David's commander, and he, he heard that uh, Absalom was trapped in the oak tree, so he rushed over there and finished Joab against the counsel of David the king. Um, but that's war. And we need to realize that in the midst of this, Absalom was coming against his father in an attempt to violently wrestle the kingdom away from David. So a typical, uh, somewhat typical father-son uh, difference of opinion on how the kingdom should be run. Um, Absalom, in the midst of this, we found demonstrated high marks of selfishness, deceit, and disloyalty. And it's easily argued, I think we could make this argument, that Absalom's death 
was actually good for the people of Israel and even good for King David. But David, nevertheless, is overwrought. He's grieved by the death of his son, even though his son was a traitor. And I think if you're a parent, you can at least have some measure of understanding for how David felt in the midst of this. A lot of cognitive dissonance probably going on in David's reaction. Uh, But in chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, so the first eight verses after those six chapters we looked at last week, Joab, who is David's nephew and military commander, brings to David a different perspective on how David should be looking at things. It's a perspective that comes from all the people who stood by David during this Absalom chapter in his life, who fought with David, and who chose David over Absalom. Joab therefore rebukes David for dishonoring his army by mourning the loss of Absalom. In fact, his troops actually returned to Jerusalem humiliated by David's sorrow for his son. So Joab conveys to David that he hasn't even thanked the troops for protecting David and returning the kingdom to him. So Joab essentially tells David, David, you've got to pull yourself together and go speak kindly to your people, for if you don't, this will actually end up worse than any bad thing that has ever happened to you previously in your life. And finally, David says, okay, I'm going to go and make this right with the people. So David talks to the people, and it seems that the door is now open for David to fully return to Jerusalem and the throne. But just like when Saul died and the transition to David's reign was rocky and challenging, there are challenges here as well. Some were not sure they wanted David back. They were offended that David fled Jerusalem in the first place. So David had to make his case to convince the people to allow him to come back and reign as king over them. And then when David fully returns, there is the matter of all of David's enemies during the Absalom debacle. All the people who went with Absalom. Where do they stand? And, and are they, these, are, these are Israelites. These are uh, kinsmen of, of David's. Uh, and so the question becomes, uh, are they to be tried and convicted for treason? Will they be executed for their treason? And a few even come to David and simply cut to the chase and offer themselves up to David. They, they say, I, I betrayed you. Just go ahead and execute me right now. But David forgives them all. And one of the things that David does to prove the extent of his forgiveness, and because he's upset with Joab for killing Absalom, He relieves Joab of his duties as commander of his army and gives the command to a guy named Amasa, who was actually part of the leadership of Absalom's rebels. So he takes Joab out and he puts somebody from the wrong side of this this last war in charge of his army. That, of course, plays out very interestingly in chapter 20. Now, David has demonstrated, and will demonstrate again, that he's actually not somebody to be toyed with. But David also has a heart of grace, compassion, and pardon, and that heart is born of his relationship with God and his connection to the Lord. At any rate, David forgiving his enemies is still not the end of this process. Besides the fact that there were tribes of God's people in the north and tribes of God's people in the south who were still suspicious of each other, In chapter 20, there's a guy named Sheba who is described in the Bible as a worthless man. I don't know if you'd ever want to be in the Bible if that's your description. You are a worthless man. And he defiantly, specifically led a rebellion against David in the aftermath of this war. 
Can I just say that unity is a really hard thing to achieve? I can't wait until the United States is all unified again behind, never mind, anyway. So anyway, like I said, uh, David is not one to be toyed with. And so in this case, in this case, rather than running, as he did with Absalom, as he did with Saul, David commissions Amasa to lead the charge to go after Sheba and to have him executed. And David said, the reason is because this guy is going to do even more harm than Absalom did. So David takes a more, what you might call, pragmatic approach with Sheba. And as you might guess, some very weird events follow. I am telling you, the Old Testament is fun and interesting and a little bit depressing to read. Some strange things happen. So in the midst of this, Joab, who was very angry that he was replaced as commander, and because he doesn't think very much of Amasa's leadership, he decides to deceive and assassinate Amasa so that he can return to his position as supreme commander, and then he would lead the mission against Sheba. So I suggested that the subtitle for today's um, uh, sermon should be Joab being Joab, because this is kind of him. If, if you've read through both of the Samuels, both of the books of Samuel, you know that Joab has a temper, he's impetuous, and he holds grudges, and he doesn't like to be offended. Except for maybe chapter 24, which is what we're going to look at next week. He's the only voice of reason in chapter 24, which we're going to listen to next week, which is very strange. Anyway, Joab carries out his plan against Amasa. And after he dispenses of Amasa, Joab and his men then pursue Sheba through many cities and towns until they finally have him locked down behind the city walls in one particular way up north city called Abel Beth Makkah. And Joab and his forces begin to besiege a city that's part of Israel. They begin to besiege Abel Beth Makkah. And, they and, and their, their plan is to wipe out the entire city in order to get to this one guy, Sheba, who is hiding out there. He's on the lamb. And in the midst of this, the Bible tells us that a prominent, wise woman comes to Joab. And the two of them negotiate a deal. She comes outside of the walls of the city. And she, she says that she and the city will give up Sheba to Joab if his army and Joab will take Sheba and just leave the city alone, leave Abel Beth Makkah alone. And she uses some pretty good arguments with Joab. The main argument being that her city is part of the heritage of the Lord, part of the heritage of Yahweh. So she says, come on, Joab, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to destroy a city that the Lord has anointed that's part of the Lord's uh, legacy? And so Joab agrees to the deal. He sees the pragmatism there. And so the woman goes to the people of her city, tells them to go and grab Sheba, which they do, tells them to cut off his head, which they do, and tells them to toss his head over the wall to Joab so that it is proven to him that Sheba is now dead. And that's exactly what they did. Weird stuff in the Old Testament. And Joab and all of his men leave peaceably and head home. And in the last four verses of chapter 20... David's administration is finally reassembled. I'm telling you, there's nothing smooth about winning a war. Now let's take a look at how David, the one with the power, now we're going to sort of focus in. David is the one with the power. Let's look at how he responds to all of his other enemies, those who cursed him and were part of Absalom's move to eliminate David. Both of these meetings in chapter 19 that we see that uh, Jason read for us have their roots in chapter 16. And this is why I love 
reading and teaching out of the Old Testament because I love context, and context is really important. This is why it's so helpful for you to be reading along with us all of the chapters, even the chapters in advance, and you should read them more than once, especially if you're somebody like me who went to North High School and you have trouble with reading comp comprehension, okay? But remember, the more you read, the, more, the better you get. I never realized this. I never understood it until later in life that if you actually practice reading, you get good at it. It's like anything else. You, you, you eventually get good at it. So, um, and, and let me just linger before we get to the text. Let me linger for a moment on this idea of power. Clearly, clearly David abused his power in chapters 11 and 12 with Bathsheba and Uriah. Can, can we agree on that? But then David also abused his power when he did not step in after Tamar was raped. That's also an abuse of power. Abuse of power can be both through commission or omission, and we need to understand that. But here, David gets it right. Because now in this case, he has a proper understanding of power, a biblical understanding of power, not worldly power. Worldly power is when we want power over others, power to control others, power to take honor and to gain status for ourselves. But biblical gospel power is the power to relinquish, it's the power to submit, it's the power to willingly sit under, it's the power to gain wisdom, and to give honor elsewhere. Now I want you to think about two New Testament passages in the midst of this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Oh, if I could find it. Actually, I have it written down here. By the way, 1 Corinthians is right before 2 Corinthians. I know where it is, okay? So here it is, actually. I have it written here. Paul writes this. We preach Christ crucified. So he's preaching submission, humility, and relinquishing. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, those who have ears to hear, as Jesus says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now this is not how the world grasps power. The willingness to sit under in our world is anathema. The world never teaches that. The world says that we have to be in charge, that we are sovereign. And then there's Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now again, in the fruit of the Spirit, those nine characteristics that make up the fruit of the Spirit, do we see anything on that list that is over or controlling of others or selfishly driven? Of course not. See, many of us are so afraid of losing worldly power that we think, uh, that we, think we have and are skeptical of submitting to the true gospel power. Same with many of the people in the Old Testament narratives. We're just so afraid of the idea of sitting under and I'll be the first to say, it's not easy. But that's why God has given us His resurrected Son and His Holy Spirit. So, having worked through that, we, we want to keep reminding you every week that this series, We Want a King, is actually about the abuse of power. And so we wanted to make sure we mentioned that again this time. So let's talk about this first guy, Shimei. 
I'll first read some from chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, and then I'm going to skip over to chapter 16 to be able to give you context as to what uh, Shimei is uh, talking about. So, verses 15 and 16, and then 18b through 21 of chapter 19. So the king, David, came back to the Jordan. He's getting ready to come back to Jerusalem. And Judah came to Gilgal. So the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, came up to meet him, to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? He's saying, come on now, don't you remember what he did, David? Don't you think we ought to put him to death and get him out of our way? Well, what exactly did he do? We didn't read that last week. Here's what he did, verses um, 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. Now understand, Shimei is confessing his sin and asking David for forgiveness. And I know some people would think, well, you know, he, he lost, so now he's, only doing, he's doing the only thing he can think of to save his life. And let's see what he did in chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. This is a, uh, earlier when the war first started. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. So you can see right there, there's already probably a potential problem. He's from the house of Saul. He's related to King Saul in some way. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and at all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, that, uh, said as he cursed... Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged you of all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, first of all, let's just recognize that Shimei has no idea what the truth of the matter was. Because all David did was leave Saul alone. And now he's accusing David of somehow wrestling the kingdom away from Saul. And he wants to hold him accountable for that. But as mentioned by Shimei in the Apology in, in chapter 19, this is the day that David fled his house in Jerusalem, ran away from Absalom to try to save the city of Jerusalem from a war. Shimei, like I said, is someone related to Saul. He's disgruntled about Saul's throne being given by God to David. Which likely, here you go, here's the reason. It likely hurt Shimei in many ways. So economically, um, status and power that Shimei might have had. So you, what you might call social capital today probably hurt him in that area. And so he sees now, as David's leaving in the wake of Absalom trying to take over the kingship, he sees an opportunity to dance on David's grave. And he treats David with contempt and violence 
and disrespect. And in the verses that follow, which I didn't read in chapter 16, David's men argue that they should just kill him. Hey, there's a bunch of us and there's just him and all he's got to, all he has is rocks. Let's just kill this guy. But David refuses. Again, he gives us that idea, that line, that principle of, listen, God will take care of him in some way, shape, or form. I don't have to take action against this guy right now. And, and Shemi hears that, and so then he doubles down on his derision. He, he increases the things that he's doing to David and his men. And, and I just want you to understand, this was some really bad stuff. David had every right to eliminate this guy, then and now, in chapter 19, but he doesn't. So back to 19 to finish this episode. Look at uh, verses 22 and 23. But David said, answering Abishai, What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel on this day? For I do not know. For do I not know that I am this day again king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now, admittedly, this is hard. In In a worldly way, David had every right to avenge everything that had happened to him and to make his life miserable for his enemies. And that's what kings used to do during this, these ancient times too. This, is, uh, this goes against every principle that every king before and after David would have had. And the reason, I think, partly is because forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard. And we need to remember that forgiveness is never one and done. Forgiveness is never one and done. Have you ever been able to forgive somebody of something really nasty and then that's it? That's the last of it? Every morning you've got to wake up and you've got to forgive them again and forgive them again and forgive them again and forgive them again. Forgiveness is really hard. It's something we have to resolve ourselves to doing every single day. And, and I'll tell you, just from personal expense, it's a lot easier to nurse your negative thoughts about others than to just forgive them. It's a lot easier to just nurse those angry negative thoughts against others. I know from experience. I'm a really good nurser of negative thoughts. Okay? It's easier to do that than to forgive people. Now, in the gospel, we are commanded to forgive as we've been forgiven. It's all over the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. And then just in case Jesus isn't enough, Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it, John talks about it. And then then you look at Jesus on the cross. Look at him on the cross. Gaze at Jesus on the cross. And then try to tell yourself that you don't have to forgive anyone else. How's that for some good old-fashioned Protestant guilt? But that doesn't mean it's easy to do. By the way... I would argue this, too. It's also really hard, on the other side, to admit your guilt, to confess that you've sinned against another, and then have to ask to be forgiven. That's really hard, too. This whole forgiveness package, no matter what side you're on, it's really hard. And it really is a God thing. But consider this, because we often learn the best by the example and experience of others, if we're smart and wise, we'll learn by the example and experience of others. We need to remember how profoundly David was forgiven for his sins in chapter 11 and 12. Think about that. David knows that he was forgiven, that he was restored, 
after the awful events of chapter 11. He was forgiven. And I think it's fair to assume that David's desire for forgiveness of others is born of how profoundly he's been forgiven. He understands that. That's the message of the New Testament. Once we understand how profoundly we are forgiven by Jesus on the cross, then we can start forgiving others. Those who have been forgiven much forgive much. But again, I said this earlier, you know what else is hard? Asking for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness with genuine sincerity, I need to add that. Asking for forgiveness with genuine sincerity when you actually own the offense takes both humility and courage because you never know how the person's going to react. It takes vulnerability and integrity, but it's also something that we're called to do. And having said that, there's an incredibly helpful practical methodology that a guy named David Augsburger has outlined for the challenging task of asking for forgiveness. And I think it would be helpful to share it. In case you don't know who David Augsburger is, he's a, he's a Christian, he's a double PhD, he's an incredible instructor and author. I've read several of his books. I got to take one class during my Master of Divinity uh, with him. I, he, he was just fantastic. Um, and, and he has this construct for how to ask for forgiveness that really puts the onus on the one who has sinned or offended the other, which is important. The onus can't be on the other person who was sinned against and offended. And the funny thing is, is that you see elements of Augsburger's four-point methodology in Shami's apology. But the, and let me just say before I, before I list this, and it might be something that you should take a picture of or whatever. Uh, I think it's very helpful. I just want you to understand if you use this simply as a methodology to get out of your guilt, it's not going to work very well. You have to own this. You have to believe it. And don't go to the other person and ask for, for forgiveness until you're ready to own it and believe it. Okay? So here's the four steps. Number, and by the way, you got to do this in person. Don't do this on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or texting and, and, well, the person's in another state. Okay, you can call them on the phone. I know that you probably don't know how to dial on your cell phone because you've just been texting people, okay? I get that. you got to talk to the person. There, this has to be real-time, synchronic communication that's happening. You can't do this digitally, okay? So here's step one. State and confess the offense, whatever it was that you, the sin that you committed against this person. The reason you have to do this is to establish the offense in both of your minds so that you're on the same page. This is the step of clarity, okay? A uh, couple times in my life, I didn't do this, and I apologized to somebody for something, and at the end of the apology, they said, <clears throat> well, yeah, I guess I forgive you for that, too, but that's not why I'm mad at you. Okay, so I could have saved myself a lot of time and aggravation, if I just said, okay, here's what I did to you. Now, I, that's hard, isn't it? Here's, here's what I did. I fully admit. I confess it. Okay? And then the second step might be the hardest. The second step is acknowledge the pain you've caused the other person. Augsburger says this, and, and I know this is really hard, and maybe for some of you a little bit too touchy-feely, but it needs to be done. Before the two of you can move on together, you have to share the experience of pain together. You have to share that together. So acknowledge the pain you caused. This takes a lot of humility. 
But also, you may be saying, I, I'm not exactly sure how I caused them. I didn't know that I did anything. I don't know how I caused them any pain, but I do know they're mad at me, and they feel like uh, I've, I've sinned against them. So here's a revolutionary idea. Ask them about their pain and have them tell you about it. Then you will understand. That's called empathy. That's called seeing things from another person's perspective. Okay, very important. So acknowledge the pain you cause. The third step is to promise. Anybody know what you're supposed to pro promise what? Anybody? You never do it again. Now, are you going to do it again? <laughs> you might. You, we're human beings. You might do it again. I understand. This. By the way, especially those of you who are married right now, oh, yeah, he's going to do it again. Oh, yeah, she's going to do it again. Okay, but he, here's the thing. The person you're, you're asking for forgiveness from, that you're apologizing to, has to hear that you know that you're going to try not to do it anymore. This is for them. This is uh, to help rebuild trust. They want to hear that you're going to work on not doing it again. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Because none of us are. But they want to hear that you're going to try. And then step four is actually ask them to forgive you. And I know by this point a lot of people say, isn't it obvious that I'm asking for forgiveness? Can't they just take it on faith that I'm asking for forgiveness? Do I have to actually ask for Yes, you do. You have to say, will you forgive me? You're asking them to re-enter this relationship with you to whatever level they feel comfortable with whether it's reconciliation or restoration or simply, I do forgive you, but I need some time. Whatever it is, you're now asking them, are you willing to move forward with this relationship in a gospel-centered way? So this is key. The confession and forgiveness are both commanded by Jesus. That is true. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't look for better ways to try to do this. And I think Augsburger has some excellent, helpful points here. Has anybody ever apologized to you with this methodology? Sorry. It, it, just, it just sort of lacks something. It lacks some depth. It lacks some truth. And then they say, well, then they tell you, Here, here's my favorite. Sorry. Now the Bible says you have to forgive me. That's always my favorite. <laughs> okay. Well, the Bible says you should own this and confess it and repent as well. So this Bible thing, helpful if it kind of goes both ways. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, okay, all right. I hate asking for amens, but you people forced me into it, I'll tell you. All right, now, last one, uh, Ziba and Mephibosheth. There's quite a discrepancy in the stories that uh, Ziba and Mephibosheth tell here. So I'm going to start in chapter 19, verses 24 through 30. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant, I said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it, and go with, the, uh, go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. 
Do therefore what seems good to you, King David. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Remember, we went through that whole thing of Mephibosheth getting to eat at David's uh, table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So, this behavior by Mephibosheth is, clear, is a fairly clear indication of, of Mephibosheth's mourning uh, the loss of David as the king. The, the author includes all of this stuff about him growing his hair and his toenails and everything uh, as a way of mourning. Even though David is under the impression that Mephibosheth turned on him when he left, because that's what Ziba told him. In verses 27 through 29, Mephibosheth says, Look, I was deceived, but I also know that you may have trouble trusting my account. I get that, so I'm just going to leave it all up to you, king. Furthermore, you've done nothing but treat me with grace and mercy and compassion, so even if you execute me now, the life that I have had under your reign has been infinitely better than any, life, any other life I could have had. And then verse 30, the joy that I have of you returning to the throne is worth infinitely more than my wealth. So what exactly happened? So again, chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 4, tell the story of what happened. When da- the, remember, this is the first day that David's running from Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, set, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, Mephibosheth remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage to you. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So verse 3 is the big lie. The big lie that Ziba tells. And it's plausible, but... Interesting David's reaction. He doesn't get the other side of the story. Have you ever been caught in that trap where, where somebody's only heard the, the other side of the story and they haven't asked you and now you're guilty of something, right? Have you been caught in that trap? Have you ever been the one who only listens to one side of the story and not both sides of the story? Okay. You've been stuck in the middle of this situation, right? There's two different stories from two different people who, who are trying to gain your attention Okay, kids, kids, do kids do, kids do this, right? They do this to us, right? Friends, friends, yeah, friends do it. Subordinates, sure. Co-workers, yes. It's really hard. And, and the funny thing is, we have our flinches, right? We always have our flinches. I mean, I mean, all of us have what's called presumptive attribution. I mean, going into most situations, we've already kind of made up our mind who we're going to believe. That's just good to know when you go into these situations. I've heard it said. I, I, I don't know if any of you have ever heard this. I'd just love to know how many of you have actually heard this. Okay, This is a quote. 
Every dispute is like a pancake. There are two big sides, and then somewhere in the thin middle, you might find the truth. Okay. And the interesting thing is the text does not indicate clearly which version is true, but 90% of the commentaries that I read believe that Mephibosheth is the correct version, and the other 10% can't decide. <laughs> I found nobody on Ziba's side. <laughs> okay. And perhaps the reason for that is that, number one, Mephibosheth hadn't groomed himself the whole time that David was in exile. That's verse 24. And second of all, Mephibosheth's response to David in verse 30 was a lot like the true mother in Solomon's split of the baby account, which is coming in 1 Kings chapter 3, right? You know that story, right? Okay, we can't decide whose baby it is. Let's just cut the baby in half and give each of you half. And the true mother says, mm, no, we're not going to split the baby, Okay. So here's Mephibosheth saying, no, I don't need the property. I'm good. Okay? So even in the midst of some really challenging and hard to explain stuff, I, I find an extraordinary amount of beauty in this narrative because we see humility. We see surrender. We see generosity. And we see forgiveness. And yeah, I'm going to go there again. Think about the cross. The humility of Jesus to submit to the Father's plan. The ability to surrender how he, to how he would have done it. He, Jesus says, there's got to be another way, right? And instead, he surrenders to God's plan. And the generosity of the Father to give us his only son for our redemption. The forgiveness of our sin that we have at the expense of the sacrificed Jesus. I was reminded of this again yesterday. I was doing a wedding in, in Prescott for a couple that uh, attends here. And just reminded again uh, that, that Paul tells us that it's out of reverence for what Christ has done for us. This is Ephesians 5. Out of reverence for what Christ has done for us, because he submitted to the cross, we should therefore submit to one another. And that involves forgiveness and extending grace as well. We see that in this text. It's beautiful. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we thank you again for your word and its truth and uh, for giving us these stories, recording them for us so that we might know who you are and so that we might understand better who we are and that we're in trouble without you, and that we need your Son. We need this supernatural intervention by your Son and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So, God, we thank you for that. And we pray that we would be a people that, as we have been forgiven, that we would also forgive. So help us to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come again to our time of reflection and response. We're going to take communion together. If our communion servers would please come forward. Also, if uh, we have deacons, uh, elders, staff in the room who can come and stand in the wings. If, if you want prayer during this time or if you have any questions, you want some clarification about what I said, you know, go somewhere else where there's wisdom, that kind of stuff. Um, you can ask them too during this time we sing two more songs together and we we come to the Lord's table where Jesus prophetically spoke about what was going to happen to him on the cross took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me
And then after they had supped on the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul says every time that we eat this bread and take this uh, cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So uh, come in reverence, but also come in celebration. Both of those things happen. Reverence for what he's done, but celebration also for what he's done for us. So let's do that now.
Grip on 
buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me we sing it again then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body Father, we declare that with all our heart. Um, And Lord, as we worship and as we praise together as one, um, I pray you would remind us as we go into the week to not stop worshiping you, that we would not be a community that lets the rocks cry out in our place, that we could continue to declare those truths that we just sung. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys for being here this week. It was a pleasure and an honor to worship with you. Um, We love you as I pray this over you. Um, I pray that you go in encouraged into the week. This comes from 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We love you. We'll see you next week.